Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, how are you? Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy in Los Angeles. Thank you for tuning in. Today on the program, my guest is Isaac Fitzgerald, author of a new book called Dirtbag Massachusetts. This book It's about a lot of different things. One of it is my family blowing apart and kind of coming back together in a new and interesting shape. But at its core, it's about my childhood and the way I reacted to that childhood, not knowing that I was reacting to that childhood. That was Isaac Fitzgerald, author of Dirtbag Massachusetts. It's a memoir and essays that bills itself as a confessional. It's available now from Bloomsbury. Isaac Fitzgerald is a longtime stalwart in the American literary community. He frequently appears on the Today Show and is the author of the best-selling children's book, How to Be a Pirate, as well as the co-author of a book called Pen and Ink, Tattoos and the Stories Behind Them, as well as another book called Knives and Ink, Chefs and the Stories Behind Their Tattoos, which won the IACP Award. His writing has appeared all over the place, including in the New York Times, The Guardian, The Best American Non-Required Reading, The Boston Globe, and elsewhere. My conversation with Isaac Fitzgerald is coming up in just a bit. Today's episode is brought to you by Harper, publisher of the new novel Aurora, a literary thriller by David Kapp, soon to be a major motion picture from Netflix and director Catherine Bigelow. Stephen King calls Aurora, quote, impossible to put down. In this novel, 
we meet Aubrey Wheeler, resident of Aurora, Illinois. Aubrey is just trying to get by after her semi-criminal ex-husband splits town, leaving behind his unruly teenage son. And then the lights go out, not just in Aurora, but everywhere, all over the globe. A solar storm has knocked out power almost everywhere. And I should mention, this is something that can actually happen and actually has happened to planet Earth, but it was before widespread electricity. So it happens in this new novel, Aurora, and suddenly all problems are local. Everything gets intense, and Aubrey must assume the mantle of fierce protector of her suburban neighborhood. Meanwhile, across the country, her estranged brother, Tom, is heading for his gilded desert bunker. He's a Silicon Valley CEO. He's super wealthy, and he's a prepper. So we have to resolve the complicated history between the siblings. We have to find out what's going to happen at what feels like the end of the world. But it's actually the beginning of some long overdue reckonings, which not everyone will survive. That's Aurora, the new thriller by David Kep, available now from Harper Books. So my guest today is Isaac Fitzgerald, author of a new memoir and essays called Dirtbag Massachusetts, critically acclaimed, out there now in a fine hardcover edition from Bloomsbury, wherever books are sold. Isaac Fitzgerald is, you know, a longtime champion of books and literary culture and started, I believe, at the Rumpus, McSweeney's, went to BuzzFeed, he's on the Today Show. A lot of writers in the literary community know him and have benefited from his industrious hard work and big-hearted championing of books. And so it's great to see him celebrating the publication of a book of his own, a wonderful collection of essays. Again, he calls it a confessional, which when you read it, you'll understand why. That is enormously vulnerable and has a lot of hard-won self-awareness and self-knowledge in it that brings you in. It's a very intimate book and powerfully so. It's got some emotion in it and a lot of blood on the page, as I like to say. And I really enjoyed it and loved meeting and talking with Isaac Fitzgerald. I'm very pleased to get to share that conversation with all of you right now. So here he is, folks. This is Isaac Fitzgerald, and his new book, One More Time, is called Dirtbag, Massachusetts. I especially in my 20s. If you and I were at a party together, Brad, and maybe we got to talking, and maybe it was one of those parties where the night was going a little long, and we were getting to know each other better, and you were maybe dipping into your background, sharing some of your past history with me, and maybe I was dipping into my background and sharing some of my past history with you. You know, I would say a lot of the things that are in the book and then people would ask what I do, and I, you know, oh, I had ambitions at the time. You know, I wanted to be a writer, and often people would be like, "Well, it seems like you could write a memoir." And always, I would react by saying, "No, no, 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 no." And 
it's 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 really funny to think about that now because I think what it comes from was you know so often we we deny ourselves the things that we actually want to do and I think I was scared that I would not maybe be able to do it well or much more likely or a combination of the two is that I felt it had already been done and probably done better. So I felt like my particular story maybe wasn't worth telling. And so for many, many years, I, I kind of promised myself, I would allude to it in certain pieces or essays. I'd allude to it, but I was never going to actually write about my childhood. And then when I sat down to write this essay collection, which when I sold it was supposed to be, you know, disparate essays about different pop culture things that childhood kept, you know, I kept, like I just said, quote unquote, alluding to it. And there's only so much you can allude to. There's only so many times you can allude to something where you're like, oh, wait, maybe this is the thing I'm supposed to be writing about. And I think, thankfully, I'd, I'd grown a little older. Because this book, if I had written it at 25, would be much different than the book that I wrote, you know, that I started basically at 35 and I'm 39 now. And so it was it was something that I realized through through writing this collection. It was something I realized I couldn't turn away from. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's like the book you have to write. It's kind of uh, non-negotiable. It's going to it's going to get you. <laughs> it's I, that's the thing that's that's exactly what it felt like i'd be like writing about something else and then all of a sudden i'd be like well the reason for this is and it's just like oh it's there it's there you're gonna have to write about it right right and a question and i felt like the last essay in the collection was so powerful and i was kind of cheering when i read it it's the one called my story and it really brings the entire collection into focus or it did that for me and it has a real emotional payoff. You go there uh, in the end of, at the end of this book. And I think for the reader, or at least for me, I needed the book to go there. I was hoping it would go there. And then it did. And it's, I know just based on personal experience writing that writing something like this is not easy. In particular, this essay where you get into the really tough stuff. And I have a couple of questions for you. One of which is, did you write this essay last sequentially? And the second question is because you reference it at several turns in the book, you reference the fact that you have been seeing a therapist and that therapy has been helping you. I wonder with the benefit of hindsight, how much you believe therapy helped you write the book because it is a very psychologically astute book. It's a, you know, that you can tell that the author has done a lot of uh, self-investigation and has confronted some deep suffering and is working through shit. So those are the two questions. Did you write my story last? And how do you, uh, you know, how do you make sense of therapy and its effect on you creatively? Yeah, 100%. And those are brilliant questions because one, Brad, you nailed it. 100%. The last essay was the last essay that I wrote. And then while I was editing and, you know, lots of moving pieces when I was editing this whole collection, lots of things going in, coming out. But I would argue that was also probably the last essay that I closed edits on as well. And what's interesting about it 
is I had the rest of the collection done. And then it was the first essay and the last essay. I knew I wanted to bookend it. And I basically wrote it as one long essay. And then I didn't, I didn't know how to break it up. And that's when I realized, so the first essay is called Family Stories. And that's when I realized I was like, okay, most of the things that were told to me can go in that. And then the last essay being called My Story, it's like, okay, here is my telling of what happened. And it was extremely difficult. I'm not going to pretend like there's anything that was easy about writing either of those essays, but especially the last one, because that's the other thing I figured out, as you mentioned, like in essays throughout the collection, again, I kind of like touch on my childhood. I will make references to a very loud household. I will make references to a um, childhood that had a bit of violence, but I will not actually describe it. And I knew, and this is something I've just gotten from reading so many other books, I knew that if I wanted this to go there, to use your phrasing, if I really wanted this to be a book that goes there and I knew I wanted it to be that type of book, I was going to have to describe those things at some point. And so for me, I realized it could be that moment at the end. You could really build the whole, almost as if you were slowly amping up the tension. Because I think almost as a reader, and I've heard this from other folks, like, they're wondering by the by that close to the end, they're almost like, oh, he's not going to tell it. He's it's just going to be a reference, but he's never actually going to get into it. And then I want to, you know, almost, I mean, it's a very dark reward. So it's a weird word to use, but it's almost like I want to reward the reader who reads the whole collection, who gets to that end to actually know what happened. So it was it was the last thing I finished. And it was 100 percent everything you're you're thinking about. Why was it? Well, because I'm. It's not an easy thing to look at. It's not an easy thing to write about. It's not an easy thing that I want to sit there and think about and spend time remembering. And that is where the therapy kicks in. That's that's where, you know, your second question truly comes to light, which is I started therapy over three years ago now. Um, many people told me that I needed it a lot earlier than that, and I wish I had listened <laughs> to them. So if you're younger and you're listening to this, let me tell you, go for it. But I'm really happy that I came to it when I did. And it, it did coincide with the writing of this book. And I gleaned so much from the work. And I, I'll, she's mentioned in the acknowledgments, so I'll say her name, Dr. Jenny Kaufman. She's incredible. And I gleaned so much from our work together. I gleaned so much from the time that I've spent with her. And so much of her work and her thoughts are in this book. And... The ending definitely has that as well, but but really an overall theme of the book, which is she was probably one of the first people, I would tell these stories out loud to her, and she was probably one of the first people to say to me, you know, Isaac, home and church are two places that a lot of people think of as safe spaces. A biker bar out in San Francisco, the work that you were doing in the porn industry at the armory, that's not exactly where, you know, a normal thought of, oh, what a wonderful safe space would be. <laughs> and she was like, but you were finding home in these other types of places. You were finding community in these other types of places and that's worth exploring. So the work that I did in therapy isn't just helpful to the book, isn't just informative to the stories that I tell in Dirtbag, Massachusetts. 
Dirtbag Massachusetts exists because of the work I did in therapy. This book would be completely different without it. Yeah, I mean, I don't, and I don't think it's hard to imagine there could be the kind of emotional payoff that you get at the end of the book in the absence of having done that kind of investigation and difficult emotional work. Yeah, and that's what I mean when I say if I'd written the book at 25, which there was a 25 year old me again, was trying to say, I'm never going to write about my childhood. But if I had done it in that moment, it would have been so angry and there would have been almost no self-reflection, I really believe. And so, I, you know, don't get me wrong, there's sometimes I'm interested, like, that doesn't mean that it wouldn't be a weird, interesting piece of art, but like, and sometimes there's a part of me that wishes I could look at it, but I'm really happy that I'm where I'm at now when I decide to write it. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So you mentioned earlier uh, that, you know, part of your reluctance to write about your childhood was this sense that it had all been done before and said before, which I think you could almost say about any book, right? Or any story that one might tell. And I think there is in literary culture some public resistance or denigration of personal narrative, whether it comes in the form of memoir or personal essay or autofiction, that it's somehow tired or less than or overdone or, you know, any number of criticisms that people might levy. And yet here you are with this uh, collection of personal essays that functions like a memoir and I think bills itself on the cover as a confessional, which I like. Uh, Where do you land on the value of telling one's story straight up? I mean, there's no way in hell I can have any other answer than I truly believe in it. Because if if I do have any other answer than, ooh, girl, I've been wasting a lot of years. <laughs> I've just always loved nonfiction. I mean, and don't get me wrong, I've loved reading from a very early age. It's a gift that my parents who 
very complicated relationship, but they really did give me the gift of reading. So I've loved books of all different types. And, you know, one of my earliest, like very fundamental reading memories is I was living in this small town and this man named Arthur Perkins, who was like an ex-reverend, gave me like a box of Stephen King novels. And like truly Arthur had like one leg was shorter than the other. So one of his sneakers had a giant, enormous rubber sole on it. Like what I'm trying to say is he seemed like he was out of a Stephen King novel. We weren't in Maine. We were in Massachusetts, but close enough. And I just remember ripping through this fiction and absolutely loving it. So, of course, like anyone, like I have such a love in my heart for fiction. But I love how stories can help a person make sense of their own life. And it's something I've been doing for a very, very long time. And so nonfiction narratives, autofiction, I am a huge fan of them. I the the books that I read that I'm I've been drawn to from such an early age were books that were nonfiction that either reflected my experience, because how thrilling to see your own life there on the page, or were experiences that I knew nothing about. Because how thrilling to get to see the world through the eyes of somebody that you maybe don't have anything in common with, or at least you think. And then as you read these stories, you find those threads that kind of bring us together. So memoir, nonfiction, it's, it, it me, I mean, it's, it's, it's my favorite thing. And now that's like the grandiose artistic answer. The other answer is, I've got a very vivid imagination. I love playing make-believe as a kid. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to knock myself on that front. But the idea of writing a novel, of writing fiction for me, seems almost like a different art form, even though it is all still writing. Whereas for me, for so long, be it through journaling or personal essays, what I've been writing are my own experiences. That's how I know how to make sense of the world. So... I love nonfiction, but it's also maybe one of the only forms of writing that I feel like I've really figured out. So that's important to me too. It's, it's interesting to talk about this because in general, for many, many years, I've been a champion of thinking less about genre. And don't get me wrong, I understand if you run like an independent bookstore, you need to be able to put things in different sections. Like there has, I get it. There's a, there's a, there's a part of labeling that's important. But I've always been trying to break, you know, literary, science fiction, romance. Like, you know, for me, it's just like, come on, like, what's a good story? That's been something that's been very important to me for a very long time. But there's something to be said for an understanding about the bravery that can come from somebody who is fully willing to tell their entire truth and how long and how hard they might have taken to get there. And I think that for me is why, again, I love all different genres. I read all different genres and I'm, I'm for breaking down genres, but it feels like the world's actually there now. You know, I feel like 10 years ago, that was like a big talk. Now we're like, we're kind of all there, right? But for me, I'm still always going to love reading a personal essay or getting this little window into a slice of someone's life because 
as much as I love the imaginary, as much as I love the escapism that can be found in fiction, the connection that can be found from through nonfiction just really, I'm sorry, it's such a grandiose word, but it feels like sacred. It feels sacred to me. Has it occurred to you that maybe your ability to write something wholly imaginary might now have some room to breathe because you've gotten this book down? Like, how could, like, this is the kind of book, and I know based on personal experience, because I, I wrote a, I wrote and published a very similar book, uh, at least similar in that same kind of uh, spiritual sense that it was this immovable object. Uh, and now that it's done, it does feel like maybe there's more space or I'm moving into a direction of more space where the possibility of writing something that's more removed from my own personal experiences might be a thing. Like, has that occurred to you? I mean, just hearing you say that gives me like little shivers, like my, my hairs come up a little bit because my reaction is, is no. My reaction is, my, my knee jerk is, I've already thought about what the next couple of books I wanna do are, the writing projects that I wanna tackle, and it's all nonfiction. But the reason why I think I get that little shiver, I get those little hairs standing on ends, is I'm also somebody that said I never wanted to write this book. <laughs> I'm, I'm also somebody who, when they lived in San Francisco, I moved there at the age of 23, I said, I'm never leaving. My heart bleeds orange and black now. This is home forever. And then nine years ago, moved to New York, where, by the way, I love forever and I'm never leaving. You know, like this is, <laughs> I think there's a history in my life, at least, of making these big promises that I'm gonna stick stick to this. And then of course, we always, it's the beauty of life, it's the beauty of being a human is we always evolve and change. Right now, I think fiction, and, and it's not, an earlier me, an, a younger me might be, would say maybe I'm intimidated by it. I think right now, you're not wrong, I maybe feel like I could tackle it, but where I'm at in my writing journey at least, I think there's a lot of stories that I still want to tell based on my life or based on things that I know about out there in the world. And I want to do that first. But maybe you and I will be talking again in like five years and you'll be like, remember when you said you were never going to write fiction? <laughs> and now you've written a novel about a, a dragon and a little boy who's a wizard yeah. or whatever. So your childhood, which is the core of Dirtbag Massachusetts, you know, just to give listeners who haven't had a chance to read some context, there's a line that you deliver in the book and you have often delivered in your life. And I hope I don't botch it, but you say something like, my parents were married when they had me, but to different people. That's exactly right. So that's the Isaac Fitzgerald origin story in a small nutshell. And, you know, you have traveled a very interesting road in life, which this book attests to, but... If we were to focus, you know, on childhood in particular, early childhood, you are the product of, um, I guess you'd call an illicit romance. How do you, how do you characterize it? An affair? I yeah, mean, no, no, that's, that's it. I mean, the opening line is my parents were married when they had me just to different people. And, and that's a line I've been using since I was very, very young because it's, it's, it's both 
I know that it has intrigue, but in a way I can use it also to deflect. I can then just kind of laugh and move on. But I would, you know, there's, depending on where I'm at when we're talking about it, like I would oftentimes follow it up with, I'm a child of passion. I was a real big, oh, I'm a child of passion. Yeah, no, illicit romance is 100% what it was. Another thing that I like to say, which is the God's honest truth, was is um, we're, we're less of a family tree and more of a family shrub because I've got like half siblings and, <laughs> and different parts of it. You know, it's, it doesn't go down in the straight way. Like it's, it's it, all the branches are kind of twisted and turning. And I do, I think as much as I use that line as a little bit of a scandalous opening, not just in the book, but in my entire life for years and years and years, I think the child of passion part of it actually does. I think there was some, I had a little bit of pride around that, which is here were two people who couldn't help themselves. They, they really, whatever was happening, what, however you want to describe it, there were better choices that they could have made, but they could not help themselves. And there's something about that that even before I really had a full grasp of what romance could be, I thought was romantic. I think there's some truth to that. Yeah. You know? Also, I mean... I was also raised Catholic. There were a lot of rules. So there's also kind of something nice about, you know, these two parents in my life were not always rule followers. They, they, they themselves had their human moments. Yeah. I mean, that's a big human moment in the Catholic, uh, in the Catholic paradigm, right? I mean, uh, to go and have a child out of wedlock or is that the way to put it? I mean, that's, that's not something that the Catholic church is typically applauding for. And I say this as somebody who was also raised Catholic. So we have that in common. The other thing, and I think it's a, you know, a related thing uh, to talk about is the fact that when you were a very young child, your family was unhoused and mm-hmm. was living uh, in some sort of Catholic shelter. It was a Catholic charity that your uh, folks were involved in both mm-hmm. as residents. And I think it was also a way of maybe making ends meet and doing some work that was like what spiritually and community oriented. Exactly. It was the Catholic worker, which was started by Dorothy day. And those, listen, we did not have a lot of art on the walls. Uh, but Dorothy day, a, a photo of Dorothy day was one of the things that was framed, uh, when we eventually made our way to John Larry house, which was basically a Catholic worker run halfway house. That was, you know, kind of low rent housing for people, unhoused people trying to get back on their feet. But before that, we were on Tremont Street, we were on Dartmouth Street, and and we were at Haley House, and there's a soup kitchen there. And, you know, again, as as you can tell, I have a lot of humorous ways of talking about this. So one of the ways I would put, you know, it's kind of like when somebody was like, I'm not just the president of Hair Clubs for Men, I'm also a user. Like... <laughs> My parents greatly benefited from the community. They were married to different people. They were both kicked out of their homes. They were both trying to figure things out. And so they were able to find shelter, but then also find community through the Catholic worker. And those were some of the happiest memories of my life. When you're, you know, I was under the age of eight. So when you're that young, you don't realize that your childhood is unique. You don't realize that you're not living you know, mayhaps, whatever the cookie cutter version of a childhood is. Although, to be honest, between you and me, I don't think many people actually are. I think we all have this idea of an ideal. And then we've realized that almost all of us are in some way or another 
living very unique childhoods. But at the Catholic Worker, I was just surrounded by so many characters, so many wonderful people from so many different walks of life, from so many different backgrounds. And I loved it. It was an incredible place to be a kid, to be running around. There were all these different adults and everyone was really trying to help each other. And 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 both of my parents, it's something that I really admire about them. They have a deep Catholic faith. But I think they're very much more in line with the Catholic worker, which let's call it what it is, and they would say this too, is a socialist organization. Then they're maybe aligned with the Vatican and the opulence and that side of Catholicism. Now that said, because the Catholic worker was where they were spending their time, it eventually led to my mother getting a job at the Cathedral of the Holy Cross, which is basically the Holy See of all of New England. And so she did kind of almost come from this very socialist, very give the t-shirt off your back to your neighbor, help one another community. And then she kind of got involved in this much more larger, what I would call kind of extreme i mean it's all organized religion but that's like the extremely organized religion well and it also brought you up against the darker aspects of the catholic church you know when it comes to child abuse and you know that whole scandal i'm totally blanking on the name of the cardinal uh it was a cardinal Cardinal law yeah you were i mean you were at in close contact or your mother was she worked for him right that's right so she she started working at a very low level position, but she's a very smart woman. She's very talented. And so she quickly rose and yeah, she eventually got to the point where she was working closely with Cardinal Law. Cardinal Law being, for those that don't know, uh, someone who, at least to the best of my knowledge, was never actually accused of abuse himself, never directly accused. But what he did and what landed him on the cover of Newsweek during the uh, spotlight era when the Boston Globe broke this case wide open and it became a national story in the early 2000s, uh, you know, kind of late 90s, early 2000s, um, very much was a part of making the decisions where priests who had um, abused children, instead of being excommunicated or kicked out of the church, would almost be brought back into Boston, spend time there, and then be sent back out to different areas throughout New England, and then of course it comes up, it's actually throughout America, and then it comes out, it's actually throughout the, the world. Um, and and in, in that way, no one was ever suffering consequences, and new communities were basically having predators sent to them by this organization, especially for those of us that were low income, we put all our faith in, we put all our trust in, uh, we put all our belief in. Um, and my mother was of course an assistant, she did not know any of that, uh, which is why she felt very comfortable, especially at the time, none of that was out in the open yet. She would bring me to the rectory, and sometimes I would literally be playing in Cardinal Law's office. I thought it was the funniest joke in the world. I'd call him Blue Jay Law instead of Cardinal because it's a bird, and I was like six, and I just thought that was delightful, and he was polite, so he'd laugh. And I remember knowing that this man was very important to my mother's livelihood. And so I felt good when I'd make him laugh like that, you know, which, you know, you can follow that thread to this place of like, that's so many people that suffered at the hands of abusive and pedophile priests that were covered up by the Catholic church. It was because they put their faith 
in these people. These were people who had the ear of God. And so, yeah, it, it's, 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 it's a line that I quote in the essay, but it's from the movie Spotlight, which is about the incredible investigation that uh, those incredible reporters and journalists at the Boston Globe did. But there's this line like, it could have been any of us. That's how close it was. And it wasn't until those stories started coming to light that people started realizing, and not to go too far down this road or give away too much of the book, but you know, even after we leave Boston, I end up in this very small rural community. And I'm, I'm an altar boy and I work with this guy, we call him Reverend Ray. And it's not for years and years and years later, once the scandal starts to make the Catholic Church take account finally for what they've been doing, that we find out that Reverend Ray was also somebody who'd been moved, accused of things throughout his, his career and had eventually been moved to Athol, Massachusetts. So, it, like, is Athol the name of the town that you moved to? It, well, so, so this is the, the, it is, but I also, like, I went to school in Orange. Uh, at times, we lived in a very small town called Peter Sam, um, but Athol is very, that whole area, it's, you know, there's Orange Athol area is one way to refer to it. There's also the Quabbin Reservoirs out there, which is a fascinating history unto itself, which is four towns that the state of Massachusetts basically buried underwater so that Boston could have clean water. Yes, the people out there are still upset about that. <laughs> um, um, but Athol is the dirtbag Massachusetts. I mean, it, it, they all encompass that spirit. But Athol is the town that I lived in for the majority of the time. And everyone else in the state would either call it rat hole or asshole, of course, asshole, Massachusetts. And you can't call a book asshole, Massachusetts, it turns out. So <laughs> yeah. It's it a tough sell. Out. It's a tough sell. But dirt, <laughs> dirt bag works. Yeah. Shout out to the record to Jason Diamond, who is the author who gave me that name. I want to be very clear. It's a great title, and I did not come up with it. I made that joke I just made to you. Can't call a book asshole, Massachusetts. And he said, why not dirt bag, Massachusetts? And I was like... Boom, there it is. Jason Dunn, past guest on this program. Yeah, good man. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So I am a person who has lived in a big city for a long time, and I often have conversations with my wife and with friends and with people on this show about the question of whether or not to get out of the city and take my family someplace quote-unquote saner, uh, someplace prettier, closer to nature, all that kind of stuff. I think it's a common line of thinking. And your book has come as close to anything that I can think of, of disabusing me of this notion, or at least making me think twice. 
uh, about a move to the country because a move to the country for you in your childhood is pretty catastrophic. I mean, it is a true pivot point in your life as you characterize it in the pages of your book. That's exactly right. Uh, I, I, everything in Boston, even though, and I'm sure for my parents especially, it was financially difficult. It was very hard um, for a plethora of different reasons. Uh, I got mugged at a very young age. There, I mean, there's all. I, I understand that's a thing. And and when I talk about this, I, I always want to give so much love to my parents because I really think you know they were having their own issues, and and it was just me and my mother that moved at first. So it was you know my parents were separated. So I understand there's a lot of complicated stuff going on there for sure. But don't get me wrong, I really do believe they were making that choice in my best interest. I really believe that. I, I I believe that that was a decision that was made out of love, and they had no idea how disastrous it would be. Um, and that and that is it's 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 tough because you're absolutely right. Like I've had you're not the first person to mention to me like, well, I've been thinking about taking my family out of the city, but <laughs> then I read your book, you jerk. And I want to be very clear, I, especially if you have the financial stability. Like I'm all for it. What I would say is don't especially if you have a bad relationship with your parents and they maybe judge your new partner and this, you know, bastard out of wedlock child that you've had, don't move next door to your parents. That's, <laughs> I, that's a key part of this story, which is my mom had nowhere to go. They had an extra place on the farmhouse. And so there was a little smaller gray house on their farmland. So we were able to move out there. And I think that really led in an already incredibly stressful time in my mother's life led to even more feelings of judgment and harshness for her um that said if you're going to move someplace like it's not just about not moving next to your parents it's like make sure there's a community there you want to be a part of make sure there's something there for your children to connect to for me i went from this place that felt hustling and bustling especially when we're involved in the catholic worker so many different people to talk to and to be a part of. And there were so many events that would happen at the soup kitchen. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere, I'm in a new place with no friends. And it's not like I can go down to some park and meet some kids. Like eventually when I do make friends, I'm riding my bicycle seven, 10 miles just to see them, you know? So it was very desolate. There was not a lot going on. There was not a lot of community and there was not a lot of support. And so what that led to was me and my mother alone in a very drafty, no heat other than the, the you know, the, the, the stove that we had, other than this cast iron stove that we had, living a life of isolation. And my mom came to really lean on me. I was kind of the only person. She couldn't talk to her parents. They were being dicks. So... I was kind of became the default person that she could talk to. And then in those moments, my father's having an affair. She doesn't know what she's done with her life. She feels like this town was a town that she always thought she was going to escape. And now she's back in it. Of course, she's turning on a, on a, on a shoulder. It's just, you know, in that moment through the, the mental issues that she was having, she didn't realize she was turning to an eight year old. And that's when things became incredibly complicated. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, you touch, um, touch upon it uh, several times, you know, in the essays leading up to the final essay about it being a loud house, there being a lot of darkness, there being a lot of sadness. It was mostly, well, I guess it was both of your parents 
sadness and suffering, but in particular, it was, I think, your mother's sadness and depression that affected you. And that puts you into a situation as a child that is sort of chronologically out of whack, <laughs> uh, where you become her sounding board at the age of mm -hmm. eight or nine or 10 or whatever, where she's telling you things she should not be telling a child and asking you for help uh, in so many words. I don't know how explicit she was about it. And it's help that no child could possibly be prepared to give. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And it, and it wasn't just psychological. Like I was also cooking a lot of the meals and just like getting her out of bed for work. Just like there was just a lot. It, it became a role reversal, a real role reversal where I felt like I was having to raise my parents. And it was a very difficult situation to be in. But also, again, I didn't know what else to do other than just keep going. Just like, well, I, I do know we have to afford things. I know that her job is important to that. So it's important that I get her out the door so that she can go to her job because I know that will help us if money's coming in. So it became, yeah, and, and, and it went on. Again, this is, this is the difference between a child and an adult as well. I think for her, it felt like a rough few years. And in the span of a whole lifetime, you know, I'm, I'm now 39 myself, who hasn't had a rough few years? But when you're eight, nine, 10, and it's been going on for two, three years, oh, that's, that's a good hunk of my life. So I just, it felt so massive to me. And it felt like it was everything. It felt, I didn't know if it was ever going to change. It's scary for a child. Yeah. But you also don't know what else to do except to just kind of try and make the best out of it. Hmm. And that's been an interesting, not to jump ahead, apologies, but like that's been an interesting thing um, between me and my mother because she's read the book. And it's, you know, as I won't give too much away, but the whole point of the book is I don't want to end it in some perfect bow. That was another, you know, I, I, I did come up in the 90s and 2000s reading these memoirs that I deeply appreciate and deeply affected me. And of course, they didn't all do this. But every every most every once in a while, you'd find one that just was like, and now I've quit drinking or like, and now life is great. <laughs> like I figured it out. And no, the thing about life is it keeps going. Um, so, you know, I, I didn't want to end this one in a perfect, pretty package. But I did want it to start some conversations. And so I got very lucky in that my mom read it. And those conversations now, completely outside of the book, not written about, are happening. Hmm. And I only bring that up right now because one of the things she said to me was, I had no idea you were carrying this. And that was, I mean, don't get me wrong. She said, I'm sorry first, which meant a lot, of course. But that was almost the next line in the letter that she wrote me. And it rung so true to me because she didn't. She, like, I, like, very quickly, you know, as we moved past these things, or even while it was happening, I was the one, I was like, all right, here it is. Here's the meal. It's on the table. Get out the door. You got to go to work. Da -da 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 -da. You know, and like, and then I think quickly we moved past it and I would never bring it up. And I think she truly, in her mind, it became, okay, those, that, was a, that was a bumpy, that was a tough part of life, but we've moved past it. And look, Isaac's very smiley. He seems like things are going okay. <laughs> and that, power, that line, 
I never knew you were carrying this. It meant so much to me to, to start that conversation. Well, it brings to mind something about your character that is often noted and which you yourself comment on in the book, which has to do with your tendency to be very polite and accommodating. And I think also to be skilled at assimilation, which is probably born of your childhood experiences, you know, in the Catholic worker being surrounded by so many different kinds of people and to be involved in that kind of community, I think would probably be uh, educational to somebody in the sense of making you polite and accommodating. But then there's the stuff that we just talked about with respect to role reversal and taking care of a parent and trying to be attuned to a parent's moods, especially when that parent is experiencing uh, difficulties with respect to mental health. And then uh, a part of your childhood that we haven't gotten to yet was, uh, which was also pivotal, was you going off to boarding school on a scholarship and being, uh, you know, kind of, uh, what is it, a fish out of water, you know, where you... (laughs) You leave the the kind of blue collar working class, uh, you know, Massachusetts country town, and go to uh, an environment that is largely populated by children of privilege. Not all, but most, and having to find your way there. And I just want to hear you talk about that because that's a that's a good skill to have. Uh, it can serve a person very well in a lot of different ways, but it can also be something that can prove to be a hindrance or prove to be, I don't know if toxic is the right word, but can make things difficult for you at a certain point. And I'd like to hear you talk about what you've learned about that tendency in yourself. No, a hundred percent. And I really think you nailed it. Like it's, 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 it's very easy to point to boarding school. So for those that haven't read the book, I, I get us, some some adults in my life who are not my parents take an interest in my well-being. I think they start to realize that maybe things aren't so hot at home. And at the age of 14, I get a boarding school scholarship and for all intents and purposes, leave my house, which to be honest is a very nice moment for my parents as well. Uh, it's kind of when they start turning their ship around uh, as well, although it take many years and it took many years for me as well. But I get to boarding school and, and, and like you're saying, that is 100% where I start to learn a bit of code switching, which is I show up to boarding school, I have a thick Boston accent. Freshman year, I feel ignorant with it. So I'd sit in my dorm room and, and practice all my R's and, and, and I still say idea. I still put R's in the wrong places, but I learned how to say car and, and, and use R's properly. Anyways, I w- there's a whole other story where the next year Goodwill Hunting comes out and everyone at boarding school starts faking the Boston accent. It's <laughs> horrible for me. I couldn't believe it. Uh, all of a sudden, people thought the Boston accent was sexy. And they still, I mean, it's like always, vote. still to this day, it's like, oh, one of the number one sexiest accents in America. And it, oh, it grinds my gears because I lost <laughs> it. I purposefully lost it. Also, I don't know. Give me a Southern accent any day. But maybe that's just my personal preference. But so I, I learned that at boarding school, kind of how, how to act, you know, and, and it was it was a big learning curve, but how to act in different situations and especially around. I'd never been out of the state for the most part. I definitely hadn't been on a plane. Uh, there, there's just these 
these students there who I, and I went in with a huge chip on my shoulder because I had this working class background. I was like, all rich people are bad. And some of them were 100%, but some of them were also very kind and very giving and like even took me on trips. Like all of a sudden I started seeing the world, like they really just broadened my horizons in incredible ways. And then I would go back to my hometown where there are people that I love and many of my best friends from that time are still people I'm in touch with and still deeply love, but not all of them. All of a sudden I realized, hang on, some of these folks are a little bit more closed-minded. They have different, like, I'm, I'm starting to learn new things about the world and I don't know if I agree with, you know, what my buddy Mike is saying all the time. So that became like this interesting juxtaposition, but I did learn how to, okay, if I go home, I'm gonna act this way. And if I'm at school, I'm gonna act this way. So that's where, almost a performative code switching started to happen. But to get to your point, Brad, it's it, it did ha start to happen before that. Absolutely. There was something about either taking care of my mom or even when things were really hard, I still had to go to school. And I knew for, like, I didn't run and tell a teacher anything that was happening. I didn't try to talk to a social worker because that's, that's I knew I knew from the area that I was living in that's how families get broken up like things can go very very south with that kind of stuff so there was always a bit of you know and, and uh, like, sorry now we're in a therapy session I apologize <laughs> but I'm just I'm just now thinking about this but it's a hundred percent like it's like no it, it goes back further right Catholicism New England or even just society in general right you have this outward facing self you put on your best okay i'm gonna go to town or i'm gonna you know go to church and you want to present a certain way people do this and so i think that was really really learned and something that i figured out very early on is that if i was polite if i was kind i would almost always get that reflected back at me not always but for the most part a good way to kind of not stick out was to be polite, to be kind, and often complimentary to the person that you're interacting with. It became a way not for me to stand out, but for me to blend in. And that was so important to me. That was so important to me. But as you mentioned, and as I'm working on in therapy, you get to a certain point in your life where you all of a sudden realize that has led to you putting other people up on pedestals. That has led to you trying to make yourself small in every social setting. And I don't, like, I'm, you know, don't get me wrong, I'm somebody who has done a lot of creative work, I've been on stages, I've been on television, but there's still this, like, I'm not, I'm always gonna be the person, no shade here, Brad, but I'm always gonna be the person asking the questions never the person answering the questions. And I, I and truly that's that's something that I'm still getting used to right now as I start to promote this book. I would be much more comfortable interviewing you about your life and your experiences than I am talking about my own, even though I went out and wrote a book about it, which is a whole other conversation as well. But for me, I learned that being polite, being kind, being, let's call it what it is, a little subservient, was a way for me to move easily throughout the world. Now, as I'm getting older, I'm starting to recognize the ways that that does not serve me. And I need to figure out how to put myself first, just a little bit. How to, and this sounds like the most 
easy, normal thing in the world, but I think a lot of people can relate to this, how to actually just ask myself, hey, how do you feel about this? It's so easy for me to go into what I would call like autopilot and just get through a situation. I don't actually take the time to look into myself and say, hey, are you, is this an enjoyable experience for you? Do you want to be here? Is this okay? And so it's still something I struggle with massively um, to the point where my last therapy session was truly Dr. Jenny Kaufman being like, okay, so it seems like people are going to want to talk to you about this book and there will be other people reading it and interpreting it. And we need to work on you not just like deflecting and, 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 and in a way shine away from that and instead being present because that's actually like, you know, what good would I be to you right now if I showed up not ready to talk? If I tried to flip this interview, you know, it'd be a pain in the ass. Right. So I'm really working on being okay with it, filling the space that that I'm in and 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 seeing what comes of that. And then I'm still it's still experimental. And as you can tell, as I ramble, I'm still working on it. Well, I think there's another aspect of this, like polite, accommodating aspect to your character that you sort of learned in childhood. And it has to do with navigating issues related to class, in particular at boarding school. There's a line that sticks out to me where you talk about being grateful, but not too grateful. <laughs> and like, there's a level of emotional sophistication to being able to do that consistently and to kind of keep your wits about you mm-hmm. that I find admirable and also a little heartbreaking. You know, it's not, not everybody can do it is I think the the admiral side or admirable side of it, but the fact that one would have to do it is the heartbreaking side of it. Which I, and that's lovely because it is a little heartbreaking and it is a little, and I appreciate you saying that there's also something to admire in it. It is something that I did constantly. Here's the other, like, I, I feel like there's five sides to this. I'd be fascinated to talk to some of those parents who whose kids did take me home for vacation or did sometimes like truly families would just be like, okay, you want your friend Isaac from boarding school to come on this trip with us? We'll pay for his ticket. We'll pay for his hotel. And there's this part of me that I'm sure at the time I was like, I'm acting just perfect. And they probably were like, you know, I'd love to interview them and hear what they're, they're like. Oh no, we knew. Ooh, you were a real mess. You, that was tough. <laughs> but we were trying, we, you know, I would, I would love to hear that. But that, so there's the there's the sad there's the admirable there's that aspect of it, but there's also like there's also sometimes you feel like a con artist, and that's what, that the grateful but not too grateful really does touch on. I I knew if I was overly thankful that it would make people uncomfortable, so it really was finding you know obviously very poor at setting my own boundaries, but almost trying to find where other people's boundaries were okay, well, this person really likes it when I'm grateful, but this person, it actually makes them a little uncomfortable and figuring and navigating that all out, which kind of makes you this, the, the word I used to describe myself sometimes is like a learning robot. It's like, it's, it's like a termin- Terminator, but not for murder or anything like that. Just like, just like, from like trying to figure out how I can fit in and, 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 and rock the boat the least amount as possible, which of course dates back to childhood trauma and, and violence in the home. But it's 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 a skill that served like that's the that's the hard thing about this. And I'm sure you know this. I know you know this. 
and so many other people can relate to this as well. We have these lessons and these tools that we learn when we're young that serve us, that help us survive. But at a certain point, we need to recognize when maybe those tools, we've been using them for a lot longer than we have to. And, and, and learning how to put them down can be very difficult. There's another passage in the book that I want to paraphrase that really hit home for me. And it's toward the end. It might even be in the last essay. And it has to do with the thing that so many of us do, which is to bury pain or to turn away from it or repress it and to just sort of forge ahead and to eventually get to a place where you have to reckon with it and to come to an understanding that burying it is an unsustainable strategy. That feels like, it feels like the heart of it for me. It feels like the like the key realization that would lead you or anyone to write a book like this, a confessional, as you put it. And I think it's such a valuable lesson because it is maybe the reflexive way that almost all humans deal with the tough stuff. Who who wouldn't want to bury it, right? I mean, it's totally understandable emotionally, but what I think Mm -hmm. maybe gets lost or what isn't necessarily understood at a level of depth is what the cost is of doing that to a human life. <laughs> so can you just talk a little bit about that and like coming to the realization that it, you know, it was unsustainable? Yeah, I, and I, I'm not unique in this. I feel like I, I remember actually once I, I can even name it. I remember watching the show. It's a cartoon called Adventure Time, which is a wonderful show very like bubbly and cute animation but actually really goes there in a lot of different a lot of different things and the main character finn at one point like something very bad happens and just as it builds like the first season you're like oh this is a cute little thing but you can tell that they're adding more and more each season i can't remember which season this happens in but at this point you're like oh this is not just like a fun cute cartoon something dramatic happens to him and he says that's going in the vault and he says it in such a light-handed way that you real oh Finn's had a vault like for a very long time from a very young age. And what was funny for me in that moment was that's something I had said for a very long time, which is all to say that this is not unique. I'm sure we all have you can say bury it, it's going in the vault, uh, that go you know that goes in the dark, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but for me, I'd refer to it basically my entire life as like that's going in the vault. Um, because that's what allows you to just like you know button it up. And keep the game going, just just moving on. You you feel in that moment you don't have time to dwell on it, you don't have time to examine it, so you have to button it up, you have to put it in the vault, and you have to keep moving. And I did that for an extremely long time. And that's another core thing about this book that you are touching on perfectly, which is that this book it's about a lot of different things. One of it is my family blowing apart and kind of coming back together in a new and interesting shape. But at its core, it's about my childhood and the way I reacted to that childhood, not knowing that I was reacting to that childhood. Because because of what we're talking about right now, if you had asked me, why are you doing this? Or why are you doing that? Hindsight 2020, now through the help of therapy, I can see the different things I'm reacting to with a lot of the actions that I had, not just in my 20s, but into my 30s. 
But at the time, I really would have been like, if anything, I was like, I'm being independent from my childhood. I'm getting away from my family. Like, look, at, I, it's, I'm my own person making my own decisions, which, of course, is all just based in this lack of control that I had in my childhood. So I'm desperate for control when I'm an adult. And so that is something that I, obviously I lived and, and, and dealt with, or to use a better phrase, did not deal with for a very long time. And this is a this is a story I don't think I've ever told publicly on a podcast or something like that. But there is I'm going to say shout out to Saeed Jones, wonderful writer, wonderful poet, also one of my best, best friends, my best friend. And we work together on top of all that. We have, we have a beautiful, wonderful relationship and we thought it'd be a good idea to work together a bunch. And uh, and we did a show, and we don't need to go into too many details, but just know that we were basically attached to the hip, doing a lot of stressful stuff. And at one point, I like I viewed myself as the light person. I viewed myself as the like ah anything goes. Like I'm fine with it. I can roll. Like no problem. Like that was a key part of how I viewed myself. Again, this almost subservient nature. And at one point probably a year and a half into doing this show together. I just, I, just, I snapped. It was, it, it was nothing big. Truly. It was like not, I didn't like flip a tape. Like truly just, I just, rawr, just like showed my teeth a little bit when we were in a meeting and and we all just moved on. But Saeed, uh, he and I, we left and we walked the hall together and he was just like, Hey, I don't know what that was. It's not my job to know what that was, but I am seeing a therapist. And if right now you're interested, I could get some recommendations. And that was a huge moment for me because something that's so clear once you start doing therapy, but you don't recognize it all before you start doing it, is that you think you're in control of all of this stuff. But what happens is it will come out in the weirdest, wildest ways. And in that moment, in a meeting, we weren't talking about anything hard, but it just just this, mm, this little bubble of rage just kind of pops up out of nowhere. And it's not rage at Saeed. It's not rage at what's going on. Like, it's, it's something totally different. And because of that moment, and because of Saeed's recommendation, and to be honest, because I was at the age and the point in my life where I noticed I was starting to recognize, no, wait, I am making the same mistakes over and over and over again. And I love mistakes. Like that's part of my thing is I so deeply believe in our ability to learn from mistakes. And I've learned through, but there were certain ones that I could just tell, wait, this is, time is becoming a flat circle. I am in a rut here. What is happening? And because I was ready for that, because there's definitely another point in my life, like not many years before that, I had been like, you want therapy? I'd be like, fuck you, man, let's go to a bar. Um, <laughs> but but because I was ready for it, I, I followed through and I found something that is not over. I It's not, there's no, I don't get a ribbon that's just like, congrats, you ace therapy, good for, no, like this is probably gonna be a life's work. It's something that I have to be on top of all the time and that has made all the difference, just just completely, just all the difference. 
And one of the things that I didn't realize, but early on, like, sorry, I've got like 20 stories I could tell here, but one of them is just going to be like the first time I went in, Dr. Jenny Kaufman said nothing. And I just word vomited at her for like an hour. (laughs) and, And let's be honest, the first like, who knows how long of therapy is like you being performative before you actually want to open up and be the vulnerable, vulnerable person you have to be to, to, to have it work. Um, but I word vomited there. And at the very end, I was just like, but anyways, I'm like making more money than I've ever made before in my entire life. And that's more than my parents ever made. And anyways, I got a nice house and I, I, I live in a good apartment. Everything's good. I, I don't even think I need therapy. Like literally had basically almost talked myself out of it by the end. And she hadn't, she hadn't said a word the whole time. She just cocked her head this to the side and she just went oh no you do and it was just like this this brilliant brilliant moment that like brought me into it but that that sorry i just tell that little story to get to this bigger story which is like therapy is a way of putting myself first which is something i'm so not used to it's an hour. It's just an hour of every week, but it's an hour of every week where I'm focusing on my issues, my problems. But what that means is that I'm not talking to somebody else. I'm not trying to blend in or do this thing where I can put the focus on somebody else or I can talk about somebody else's things or I can help somebody else or whatever weird things I'm trying to do to navigate the world. Therapy at its basic level means I think I'm worth spending an hour on every week to try and improve. And that alone it sounds so simple but somebody that definitely doesn't go to the doctor as much as they should somebody that definitely doesn't go to the dentist as much as they should i'm i'm very used to putting myself last i should be like you know i'll fix i'll get to my own problems after i work through everyone else's problems therapy is this this way of being like no it's okay you can put you and your own problems and there are many first and in fact only by working on those are you actually, not not in a fake way, not in a performative way, but actually going to be of use and helpful and a good community member to other people? Right, right. I mean, that's when we get to the cost issue because I think the it's like this inverted logic that so many of us cling to, which is, you know, do I address the tough stuff or do I stay here in this kind of numbed out place where I've repressed it, which you know, when you say it that way, it's like, well, no, you address it. But the numbed out place where you repress it feels safe. <laughs> and it's familiar. And, and, and you think it's not going to change. That's the lie you're telling yourself. Oh, things are good. And as long as I can just not rock the boat, it'll be all right. But what you, you and this, this is, this is what I would say to anyone listening to this. You don't, don't read the book. I don't, I, 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 it would mean the world to me if you did but there's life is short do whatever you want to do if you take one thing away from this and and i say it's actually something similar in the book it's just like you can't run away from it like start now whatever it looks like for you to actually start grappling with these things because you think you're beating it but you're not like that's the that's the snake eating its own tail it can fool you into thinking that you're in control but you're not. And it's only through actually facing this kind of stuff that you're going to realize it's where you thought you were like really handling it and you were staying and like to use your language that you just said numbed out is actually a place that where you're not growing. And like the whole 
awesome thing, the blessing that is life, is that we are all growing and we are all changing. And we're not all always getting better, just for the record, that's bullshit. Like sometimes we're getting worse and it's ups and it's downs. But to just be static, because that's where you feel safe, is, is where you're really building yourself up. You think you've, you've beaten it or you've run away from it, but it's always gonna be there and it's gonna come out in these weird, weird ways that's gonna be much more explosive than you can possibly imagine. Well, one of the uh, last things I want to say is about stuff that's not in the book because people mm -hmm. who are familiar with you and the work that you've done through the years at the Rumpus and McSweeney's and at BuzzFeed, the Today Show, you, you know, that stuff isn't in this book. And I I'm wondering why. So somebody asked me, somebody asked me a, a similar question the other day and they are like, and, and the way they put it, which I thought was very kind, but they were like, you've had a lot of success. And especially given now knowing kind of where you came from in the book, you had a lot of success. Why is that not in the book? Almost, almost in this way of like, hey, you, you know, you could have woven through almost these happier, especially towards the end things. And I think for myself, and I will only speak for myself here, but personal essays or, you know, to bring it back to what we we're talking about at the beginning, like nonfiction or autofiction or how, you know, people writing about their own life. If the takeaway is like, look at how good I am. I find it, I find it boring. <laughs> I find that to be not a thing that I, as a reader, want to consume. So when I was writing this, you know, you, you, you come in, it's a hard thing to recognize. I could have tinkered at all these essays and added more and taken more away of like, all right, where do you end it? Where do you want to, you know, where do you want to get your folks? And that's why I realized more and more, it's like, no, this was the story of childhood. I don't need to put everything in this. You know, I don't need to put, this is not a, you know, I'm not 80. I'm not writing about my accomplishments. It's not the 1800s. And I was like, ah, look at me, the horse baron of Western Pennsylvania. You <laughs> though, know, like, though you are, as you say, a bastard prince of New England, you are. <laughs> yes, a bastard prince of New England, which I will take. But you, you get what I'm saying. There are those memoirs that are just like, look at all this cool shit I did in my life. And it was important to me that while I am, don't get me wrong, I'm extremely proud. It's probably my favorite thing in the world. The books community, the work that I've done in books, I, I, I so believe in books and books are very much a part of the book in their own way, especially as a gift that my parents, you know, who who messed a lot of things up, but they, they did give me a love of books. They gave me a love of literature. They gave me a love of education. That's in there. But I didn't I didn't need to to write about, oh, and, and here's where I got this job or here's how I did this and here's how, like that to me felt like it would be a little boring. And, and the best example I have of this right now is I recently wrote an essay for Esquire. And it's about my decision not to have children. And it's also about how much I love being an uncle, both to my family, but also to friends with children. And if you read that essay, the first 40 to 50%, it reads exactly, I'm, I'm literally toying with this idea of what we're talking about. It's like, I love being an, it's like literally almost like a list of like, I hung out with this kid and I did this and this was so fun. And the whole point is I'm trying to almost make it taste like cotton candy, oh, like to the reader. 
which is something I don't enjoy reading myself. And then, but then I try to put it, you know, not to give too much away, but basically there's a moment where I'm watching a nephew and a niece of mine that is very much linked to my childhood, very much linked to the, the, the violence that my family had and my parents had and, and the switch that happens in me. And, and I kind of set up that beginning of Cotton Candy to get to that moment to, to flip the essay on its, on its head because I want to show like, no, like even those of us who pride ourselves in trying to do well, we have these moments where we fail, where we falter. And you know, if, if I've done the book right, that's what I'm showing in my parents too. Like I've said throughout this whole entire interview, when I was 25, I would have written the book and my parents would have been the villains. I'm hoping that in, in this book, my parents are seen as very complicated, difficult people who they themselves have been given a chance to grow and change. And so those are the, the, the parts of essays that really speak to me. So in that Esquire essay, I tried to pull that off. I, you know, you, you can read it. You'll let me know if you think I did or not. But that's why in this book, it was very important to me not to list accomplishments or be like, oh, look at how far I've come. It was more about like, no, this is about an examination of self. And the work that I've done in the books community at those different places that you mentioned, they can that can stand on its own. It, it doesn't need to all be in the book. And that was that was in, in a way a very freeing thing when I realized that. So where can listeners find you? Uh, what are you up to today, you know, in the books community, aside from obviously the publication of Dirtbag? Uh, and what are you, you see, you mentioned earlier, you knew, you, uh, know what your next couple of book projects will be. Can you give us any hints about what that yeah, might well, be? I, I can, and it's going to be great. It's going to be perfect for everything we talked about. And again, Brad, I just want to say again, thank you so much for these wonderful questions. Thank you for reading the book and so clearly connecting with it. And like, this has been such a, and I hope it feels that way on your end too. But for me, this has been such a fulfilling interview. I really appreciate it. But where people can find me right now is I'm on Twitter at Isaac Fitzgerald. Uh, I'm on Instagram at Isaac.Fitzgerald. But the thing that I'm doing right now that I love the most is I have a little, I just call it a little walking blog. It's my little Substack. It's called Walk It Off. I started it during the kind of the late, late months of, of or no, sorry, the early, like April of 2021. And it's basically just about walking with either on my own, but usually with other writers or artists and interviewing them while we walk to a place that is meaningful to them. So that's just walkitoff.stubsack.com. And the next two projects, I'm, it, it, it dovetails perfectly with everything we've talked about here. One will be about a bar and one is going to be a walking project. Ah. <laughs> All right. And that's I think I think walking and again light responsible drinking uh, is going to be the next couple of things for a while. Excellent. Well, it's been a joy to talk with you. I really appreciate the time. Congratulations on this book. I have been seeing a lot of press for it. it seems like there's like a lot of good buzz, and I think it's especially nice to see that happen for somebody who has put so much energy and effort into championing the works of other writers so kudos to you and i hope you enjoy it thank you so much brad and again just truly i mean i know this is probably like your 800th and who knows how many episodes but goddamn, you're good at this brother so thank you very much 
All right, everybody, there we go. That was Isaac Fitzgerald, and his new book is called Dirtbag Massachusetts, a Confessional. It is a memoir in essays available now from Bloomsbury. You can find Isaac on the internet. His website is isaacfitzgerald.net. Once more, the book is called Dirtbag Massachusetts. Go get your copy right away. The Other People podcast is offered freely. There are a couple of great ways to support the show. First of all, rate it and review it over at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It just takes a couple of minutes to do this, and it really helps. It helps other listeners find the show. So if you have the time and the inclination, I hope you will rate and review this program wherever you listen. Another great way to support the show is over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. The Other People podcast is offered up freely. The entire archive is made available free of charge. That's almost 800 episodes and counting. So it's a listener-supported show, and you can support this podcast for as little as $1 a month. I've tried to make it as user-friendly and accommodating as possible to different uh, levels of support. As you move up the scale, you can get other people gear, a t-shirt, a tote bag, coffee mug, and so on over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. And, uh, you know, support the show. Help keep it going. My new novel is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. If you would like to read it, that would be great. It's available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. The audiobook edition is narrated by me, so go get a copy if you are so inclined. Again, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. The Other People podcast has its own official app. Did you know this? It's a great way to listen. It is free. The Other People with Brad Listy app. Check it out wherever you get your apps. And last but not least, the Other People podcast has its own YouTube channel. The entire archive of this program is available over at YouTube. Search for it by name, Other PPL with Brad Listy, and hit the subscribe button. It's free. All right? So I believe that's everything. I think I've, I think I've got it all. I don't know who's on the program next week. I'm still sorting it out. But there will be a show next week, another conversation, rest assured, and I will meet you there. Mm-hmm.